Uh, I, love, I love those words from our friend Bree. Beautiful piece. Um, beautiful spoken word piece. I love the question she asks. So when you hear his name, what comes to mind? When you hear the name Jesus, what comes to mind? Um, the, the theologian A.W. Tozer famously posed this question uh, years ago in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, that um, wasn't a question. He actually declared it as a statement that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That whether you are a passionate follower of Jesus, the most religious person on the planet, or just an outright atheist, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. It frames our reality. And for the last month, we've been journeying through a series exploring the various titles of Jesus, not just because we want to know more, but because we want to be changed. Because we believe that these titles of Jesus really matter, again, not just for knowledge's sake, not just for an increase in intellect or as a mental ascent, but they matter for our very real lives today. And today we conclude with what is probably the most well-known title for Jesus, Christ. Now here's the thing. The name Jesus Christ might be the most famous name in world history. I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, it is the name that is most well-known, most revered or hated and mocked and everything in between, probably in the history of the known world. But we want to begin with this idea. The name Jesus Christ is not actually a name. Jesus' name is not Mr. Christ. Often we think that it is, and it is okay if you think that it is. That's very common. His dad was not Mr. Christ. His name is not Mr. Christ. And um, I know we've got our middle school students here. Welcome. I'm so pumped you guys are here, you guys. Please, let's welcome them again. We're going um, um, to celebrate them a little bit later in the service. It'll be really cool. You'll, you'll see some of the things that God has been doing in and through them. So I, I love you guys. And I'm so proud of you, and I'm a little nervous because middle schoolers are very judgmental when it comes to <laughs> teaching, and I'm not as funny, nor good-looking, nor as tall as Joey. So I apologize in advance. Please forgive me. Okay. His name is not Mr. Christ because um, in Jewish tradition, they use what was, what's called patronymic names. Now, this feels a little bit like school. Again, I apologize, but hang with me, you guys. It's going to be really, really helpful. Patronymic names are basically, there's a formula to creating patronymic names. What you do in that tradition is you take your first name, the name that your parents gave you, and then you add the words, the Jewish words, the Hebrew words, ben, meaning son, or bat, meaning daughter. And then you add the first name of your father. And so I see Justice Tish here, who is the son of our dear friend Dave Tish, one of our teaching pastors here. Justice's patronymic name would be Justice Son of Dave. Now, you would also sometimes add your hometown. So Justice's name would actually be Justice, son of Dave of San Jose. That would be his patronymic name. You can go with that if you want to. It's actually way cooler maybe than Justice Tish. Okay, so what that means is Jesus' name, his full name was not Jesus Christ. 
He was not Mr. Christ. Jesus' full name when he was walking the earth was Yeshua ben Yosef, which means Jesus, son of Joseph. Or adding the hometown and shortening the name. This is the name you see most of the time in the New Testament, in the Gospels. His name would have been Yeshua Nazareth, which means Jesus of Nazareth. Sound familiar? This was Jesus' name. Jesus' actual human name at the time in the first century Jewish world was Jesus, son of Joseph, or more commonly for him, Jesus of Nazareth. So the question, what is Christ? If he's not Mr. Christ, why does everybody call him Jesus Christ? Like, where does that come from? Okay, track with me here. This will all make sense in a moment. The English word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. It's just a transliteration. Transliteration is not a translation. It's literally taking the sound of the original word and just transliterating it into your own language. So Christos to Christ. So Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. And the Greek word Christos is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, the Hebrew word Mashiach. The word Christos in Greek And the Hebrew word Mashiach are the same word. And the Hebrew word Mashiach is the word we translate into the English word, anyone have a guess? Messiah. And so the word Christ in the Greek Christos means Mashiach, which means Messiah. So the name or the title Jesus Christ is literally Jesus Christ. Messiah. Let's dig a little bit deeper here. The words Christos and Mashiach, which we translate Christ and Messiah, in the original context, in the ancient Greek and in the ancient Hebrew, they meant a very specific literal phrase. Both Christos and Mashiach, even though we translate them into the English Christ and Messiah, literally in the original text of the, of the day, the original language, Christos and Mashiach both meant anointed one. And so the word Christ, which we get from Christos and Mashiach, Messiah, actually means anointed one. So when you say Jesus Christ... What you are actually saying is Jesus Messiah, or more literally, Jesus the Anointed One. Okay, now this opens a whole other can of worms. Because we don't do a lot of anointing these days, right? When's the last time you anointed somebody? Anyone? Yeah, no one wants to be weird and raise their hand, right? You're like, me, yesterday, my cat, or whatever. That would be very strange. We don't do a lot of anointing these days, but in the ancient world, and actually not just the ancient world of the Bible, but up until very recently in world history, anointing was a very common practice. Let me show you a painting. This is a painting called The Coronation of Napoleon by the French painter Jacques-Louis David. I think it's Louis David. Right? Jacques-Louis David painted this famous painting called The Coronation of Napoleon. It's actually at the Louvre in Paris. I've seen this painting in person. It's huge. It's like almost 40 feet wide and 20 feet tall. It's one of these giant, massive paintings. If you've ever been to the Louvre, it's one of the ones that's in like those huge rooms that just takes an entire wall. 
called The Coronation of Napoleon. It was painted in 1807 by Jacques-Louis David. And it was commissioned by, guess who? Napoleon, right? It was like quite narcissistic. He's like, listen, I'm going to be coronated as the king. I want you to be there, observe, and then I want you to paint a giant painting of my coronation. And so he does. Jacques-Louis David paints this painting called The Coronation of Napoleon. And of course, Napoleon commissioned the painting in order to celebrate and commemorate his coronation as the emperor of France. Now, I want to give you a close-up image. You see in the very center of the painting, that is Napoleon standing with a crown in his hand. And the woman kneeling before him is his wife, Josephine. Now, what has happened right before this moment in real life, what happened was Napoleon had crowned himself. He had anointed himself the emperor and ruler of France. And now he was taking that crown and he was about to bestow it, place it upon the head of his wife, Josephine, to crown her, anoint her essentially as the queen of France. But what I want you to pay attention to is this. You see behind Napoleon a man in a white robe sitting in a chair. You see him? That man is Pope Pius VII. He was the pope at the time, meaning he was, the, he was basically the most significant and important religious ruler of the day in the Roman Catholic Church. He was the religious world leader. Now here's the story. When Jacques-Louis David first painted this painting, when he, before he put paint on it and he sketched the painting with pencil, and he showed Napoleon what he was about to paint over the sketching, Jacques-Louis David had originally drawn Pope uh, Pius VII with his hands folded over his lap. And the reason Jacques-Louis David painted Pope Pius VII that way is because when Jacques-Louis David was at the coronation, that's how the Pope was sitting, with his, hand folded, with his hands folded over his lap. And Napoleon came to David and he said, no, 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 you are not painting it this way. And he said, I want you to re-sketch this and I need you to paint the Pope with his hand outstretched. Do you see his hand there? It's pointing out toward Napoleon. And the reason Napoleon demanded that he paint the Pope with his hand outstretched was because Napoleon wanted to make sure that his coronation as the emperor of France had the visual anointing of the church. And so Jacques-Louis David goes back, he resketches, and he paints what is an inaccurate vision, an inaccurate image of what actually happened at his coronation. The Pope had actually been sitting with his hands folded in his lap, but the image is depicted as the Pope reaching out his hand toward Napoleon, a symbol of God anointing Napoleon as the emperor of France. This is 1807, you guys. Not that long ago, in terms of world history. Just, you know, a couple centuries ago. Because anointing, up until very recently, was critically important. 
Napoleon wanted to make sure that this gesture of anointing, this anointing from the Pope who represented God in his worldview, he wanted to make sure that the anointing was represented in the commemoration of his coronation as emperor. That this wasn't just a political coronation, but that it was actually anointed by God himself. Anointing is the act of conferring upon someone or something a transcendent or divine power and honor. Anointing declares utter significance and it proclaims that things have changed now because this particular person has arrived. Anointing is critically important in the ancient world and up until recently in world history. So, anointing, again, was very common throughout the world up until the last couple hundred years. In fact, in the ancient world, at the time of Jesus and long before Jesus, anointing kings and emperors with oil, specifically, was really common. This was a practice that was, um, we have evidence of this happening in Egypt, in ancient Babylon, certainly in Rome at the time of Jesus. And so anointing with oil was a big deal, and it served the purpose of cleansing and consecrating and venerating and lifting up and commemorating that this particular person was not just a regular human being, but that now divine power and honor had been bestowed upon the person that was anointed. And they used oil because oil was vital in the ancient world. When you and I think of oil, we most typically think of like cooking. But in the ancient world, oil was used for not only cooking, but for lighting and for washing in lieu of soap. It was used for cosmetic purposes and celebrations of joy. Oil was used medicinally. It was used commonly in religious ceremonies. And so oil, for the most part, was really expensive and uh, it was highly valued. And so they would use oil to anoint kings and emperors in the ancient world. But remember that Jesus is Jewish. And in Jewish tradition, they didn't just anoint kings. There were two types of people in Jewish tradition that were commonly and regularly anointed. Kings and priests. Kings and priests were commonly anointed in the Jewish tradition. Let's talk briefly about these two. First, priests. Priests were essentially, and there's a million things we could say about priests, but let's just talk very briefly. Priests were essentially mediators between God and people for the sake of reconciliation. That was the job of a priest. Priests existed so that a holy God and an unholy, sinful, broken people could be reconciled to one another. Priests stood at that center point. They pulled God toward people, and they pulled the people toward God through all sorts of rituals and exercises. But essentially, priests are mediators who seek reconciliation between God and people. You have to remember that as we get here toward the end. And then kings. What were kings? Kings were those who ruled over God's people. Now, when you and I hear the word rule, we think typically of like oppressive rule. You know, like uh, a month ago, we celebrated the 4th of July, which was like our nation's celebration that we don't have kings here. 
right? We left Great Britain, and we're a democracy, and we don't have oppressive rulers. Now we vote, and every four years we can make our voice heard, and we can just change over who leads our nation. And um, those even with the highest authority and power, they are supposed to, at their best at least, they're supposed to serve the people, not rule over the people. And this is helpful, because when kings were called to rule, biblically speaking, the word rule actually is best translated as to steward. It's not to wield oppressive might and power over others. It's not to suppress and tamp down. It is to serve and lift up and steward the responsibility of helping people flourish. That's what kings at their best were supposed to do. And so priests mediated toward reconciliation and kings ruled, meaning they served and they stewarded for the good of the people and in Jewish tradition for God's glory. So kings rule, they serve and they steward on behalf of God over his people and his creation for God's glory and for our good. So again, in Jewish tradition... Two types of people were anointed. Priests who mediated toward reconciliation and kings who served and stewarded responsibly for God's glory and for the people's good. Priests and kings, they are the ones who are anointed. Okay, what does any of this have to do with the word Christ? Messiah, anointed one. If you go to Hebrews... Chapter 7, there's this really random passage where the writer of Hebrews connects Jesus to a very obscure priest in the Old Testament called Melchizedek. Let me just read the passage to you. This is Hebrews 7, verses 11 and then 22. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, that's all confusing, don't worry about it um, for our purposes today. And indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood. Why was there still need for another priest to come? And this is the key. One in the order of Melchizedek, random, so random. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. So in Hebrews 7, the writer connects Jesus to this super obscure Old Testament priest named Melchizedek. But I want to point something out to you. When you go to Genesis chapter 14 and read the original story of Melchizedek, and he's barely in there, I want you to read the description of this guy Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Interesting. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram. Okay, does nobody else find that fascinating? <laughs> like, there's like three Bible nerds in here that are like, whoa, and the rest of us are like, this is so random, you lost me. Stay with me. Melchizedek is this random guy in the Old Testament, and not only is he a priest, he is also what? A king. He is the king of a place called Salem. Most scholars believe Salem is Jerusalem, the capital city, the religious epicenter of God's people. Also, the word Salem 
has etymological roots, meaning its root word is the word shalom. Anybody know what shalom means? Peace. This man, Melchizedek, is the king of peace, who is also bringing bread and wine to a man named Abram, and he's also a priest. Does this sound like anybody? Holy smokes, you guys, the Bible. I could just leave right now, and we're just like, oh my gosh, this is insane. Jesus is on page 14 of the Bible. And that's made clear to us way later in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the king of peace and our great priest. This is why his title is Christ. It's not his last name. Jesus is not simply an anointed one. He is the anointed one. Jesus with these allusions to this random guy named Melchizedek, who was the king of a city called Peace, who brought bread and wine to reconcile to a man named Abram, and he was also a priest. This man is a foreshadowing of Jesus, the anointed one, a king and priest, the king of peace, who by way of bread and wine reconciles us as a priest to God above. Holy smokes. This is why we call him Jesus Christ. John 18. Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. Jesus makes it emphatically clear here. If you have a kingdom, what are you? A king. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul writes this. For there is one God and one mediator reconciler between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus Christ is the one true king who serves and stewards by way of bread and wine, his body and blood, to reconcile us as priests to God. Why is this important? If we don't get this right, we start going all sorts of directions. Um, anybody know Michael Gunger? He was a Christian recording artist. He was a worship leader. Um, wrote amazing songs. Some of them we used to do here at Westgate. But very sadly, several years ago, Gunger declared that he was no longer a Christian. And I think now he self-identifies as an agnostic. Um, just a week and a half ago, he tweeted this. Jesus was Christ. Buddha was Christ. Muhammad was Christ. Christ is a word for the universe seeing itself. Hey, guess what, you guys? Surprise. You are Christ. And we are the body of Christ. This tweet got over 1,500 retweets and over 700 likes. 
Let me, let me share something with you. And I don't know Michael Gunger personally. I have deep respect for his artistry. I am heartbroken and saddened by his journey away from faith. Gunger nails it with his first line and his last line. Jesus was Christ, although I would argue Jesus is Christ. And that last line, yes, we are the body of Christ. But let me just tell you from my perspective, Listen, this may surprise you. I am not Christ. I am not the anointed one. I am not the king who has come to serve and steward for God's glory and for your good. I am not a priest who can mediate between you and God and reconcile you fully. I am not Christ. And surprise, surprise, you are not Christ either. There is only one Christ. Only Jesus is the Christ. You are not, I am not. Only Jesus could mediate on our behalf and truly reconcile us with God and rule, serve, steward with righteousness, justice, and mercy. You cannot, I cannot, and there is not a person or thing or movement on the planet that could do that work. Only Jesus. Only Jesus is the Christ. There is only one Christ the Messiah, the anointed one, our great king and priest. So what does this mean for us? Why does any of this matter? A couple of thoughts to close. There is an immense calling on our lives if Jesus truly is the Christ, and there is an immense comfort. First, calling. Most people today call those who follow Jesus Christians. Now that word has been pulled apart and culturally it means all sorts of things it was never intended to mean. If you go out on the streets today and you ask a random person, a random passerby, hey, what do you think about Christians? You're going to hear a million different things, mostly negative, that have nothing to do with actually following Jesus. And this should be a gut check for us, that how we live and act and move and love and serve our unbelieving world matters. But here's what Christians actually means. It simply means little Christ. What that means is that Christians are, biblically speaking, men and women who are called to be formed into Christ-likeness every day in big and small ways. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 11, this is the first place that Christians are called Christians. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The reason this is important is because the, the word disciple or disciples is found countless times in the New Testament, whereas the word Christian or Christians is found, um, you can count the number on one hand. It's very few times in the Bible. The reason that's important is because a Christian and a disciple are synonymous. You cannot be a Christian without being a disciple. Make sense? Now, what is a disciple? A disciple is a student or an apprentice. An apprentice is the best word for this. 
I had a friend when I was in high school. His name was Peter, and he had a subscription to Car and Driver magazine. He loved cars. He could tell me everything there was to know about cars. His father owned an, uh, a, a mechanic shop, like an auto repair shop. And one day, his father said to Peter, my friend, listen, Peter, you know everything there is to know about cars, but if your actual car broke down, you wouldn't know the first thing to do. So what did Peter do? He began to apprentice under his father. Rather than simply reading glossy magazines about cars, he got his hands greasy under the hood of cars. And then he was able to actually know, like in whole-bodied ways, about cars. Make sense? That's what it means to be an apprentice. That's what it means to be a disciple. It is not to read the glossy magazine version of Christianity and to know all the theology. It is to get your hands greasy under the hood of your life to do the actual work. That's what it means to be a disciple, which means that's what it means to be a Christian. So if that is true, that means that you and I are not simply to sit back and know that Jesus Christ means he is king and he is priest, that he serves and stewards and mediates and reconciles us. It means that we are to what? Become like him. That in many ways, though we are not Christ and we will never be Christ, to be a Christian is to be a disciple, an apprentice, meaning we are to live our lives in such a way that we too, like Christ, our great king and priest, join him in the work of serving and stewarding our world and being mediators between God and those far from God to reconcile all to God the Father. This is the calling. If you are a Christian, you are one being formed into the likeness of Christ, the king and priest of all the world. And if that is true, it means that you are being formed into the image of one who is about serving and stewarding and reconciling. That's the calling. This is why understanding what the name Christ means matters so much. In fact, look, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you are a Christian, your job, your calling, the mandate on your life is to serve and to steward and to reconcile all to him. That's why we're here. But this calling leads us to a comfort. You see in this passage, 2 Corinthians, at the beginning, what does it say? This is for anyone who is what? In Christ. Listen, no matter what you are going through, no matter how chaotic and difficult and painful your life, no matter how uncertain these years may feel, no matter how much you feel unseen and unknown and unheard, you if you are a follower of Jesus, are in Messiah, Christ. You are in the great king and priest of the world. 
You are in the one who serves and stewards all the way to the point of bread and wine, body and blood, given so that we might have life. You are in the one who reconciles you as broken as you are to a perfect and holy God. You are not just with him. He's not just alongside you. He, you are in him. I mean, think about that, you guys. He's not just for you. You are in him. And Colossians 1, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Not only are you in Christ, Christ, King, Priest, Messiah, Reconciler, Ruler of the world, is in you. Christ is in you, the anointed one, the one that shows up in the earliest pages of the scripture to reveal to us where God is taking the human story, the epicenter of all of life. That Christ is not just out there floating in the ether. He is in you. If there is ever any comfort we can gain from the truth of the scriptures, it is this, that Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And we are kings and priests. That we are not Christ, we are not the anointed one, but as Christians, as followers of Jesus, being made in his image and likeness, we are called to serve, to steward, and to reconcile. Two weeks ago, I was in this room, and a bunch of these middle schoolers, along with a bunch of high school students, were right here. And I stood on that end wall, and I watched these students who are like 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. I watched as they worshiped King Jesus, the Christ. I watched as dozens of them lifted their hands and committed their lives, either for the first time or to renew their commitment to Christ, that Christ is now in them and that they are in Christ. And you know what's really crazy, you guys? It felt like before my very eyes, I saw teenagers become kings and priests. I saw them standing with arms around one another. I saw kids breaking down as they began to realize their deep, desperate need for Jesus Christ. And I saw others of them wrap their arms around those who were breaking down to reconcile and mediate the connection. I saw them serve one another. I saw them steward their great responsibility to draw many to Christ, our king and priest. You're not just teenagers. You're not just middle school students. You're not just whatever the world tells you you are. You are kings and priests. God has put you on the planet so that through you, he might change your home, your school campus, this church, and the city, This sounds so audacious, but I believe this. The world. Don't let anyone ever tell you, well, you're just a kid. 
No, you're whatever age you are. But if Christ is in you and you are in Christ, you are kings and priests here to serve and to steward a world in need of hope and to reconcile many to the Christ who has changed you and is in you and is moving through you. This is true for all of us. Listen, I showed you that painting earlier of Napoleon, the coronation of Napoleon. I want you to look at this painting again. Even though there's a billion people in the painting, it looks like, the lighting of the painting is very clear who's at the center, yes? Even though the painting is like the full wide scale of the painting, your eyes go a particular direction, do they not? It goes to Napoleon, and it goes to his wife Josephine, and it goes to Pope Pius behind him. I want to show you another painting. This is a painting by a Dutch painter named Peter Bruegel, painted in 1564, almost 300 years before Napoleon, and it is a painting called The Procession to Calvary. I want to ask you the question, do you see the Christ in the painting? Anybody see him? Raise your hand. Anybody see Christ? Yeah, I see a couple hands. Anyone else? Yeah, a few more hands. It takes a while, doesn't it? Jesus is dead center, and you can barely see him. You can see a man, he's wearing like a blue first century Jewish robe, and he is crumbling beneath the weight of a cross. Do you see it? It is really hard to see. But here's what you need to know. Bruegel painted Christ intentionally difficult to see. Bruegel is like the original artist of Where's Waldo. This is like a Where's Waldo, Where's Jesus is what, what's happening here. This is a Where's Jesus. Bruegel did this intentionally. In fact, what's really fascinating is he's a Dutch painter in modern-day Netherlands, and everybody else in the painting is wearing clothing that was reflective of 16th century Dutch life. But Jesus is the only one wearing traditional Jewish garb. Bruegel was clear about this publicly. The reason Bruegel painted it this way is because it was his way of saying that Christ, our great king and priest, is at the center of it all even when we don't realize it. That across time and space, in the midst of whatever chaos or anxiety or fear or doubt or circumstance or situation you are navigating, in the midst of all of your pain and shame and guilt, in the midst of all of the world's offerings of Christ. You are Christ, and I am Christ, and money is Christ, and your job and your career are Christ. Your family is Christ. Dating is Christ. Finding a spouse is Christ. Having children is Christ. Retiring early is Christ. Climbing up the corporate ladder is Christ. All of these things that the world offers us to tell us that we can find meaning and purpose and joy and reconciliation and fulfillment and all of that stuff that every human on the planet is looking for in the midst of all of the chaos 
chaos, all that is happening all around you, all of the noise, all of the voices, all of the clamoring for your attention and your allegiance and your pocketbooks, in the midst of all of that, Christ remains at the center. He is hard to see because you are surrounded by chaos, but he's there. And he's the only one, the only one that can give you the life you long for. Because he's the only one that through bread and wine, body and blood, served and stewarded a world in need and reconciles all of us to God the Father. So the question is, can you see? Can you see past the chaos? Can you see past the pressure? Can you see past the noise? To see Christ, the one and only Christ, the center of it all, holding it together. Let's pray. Jesus, we um, stand before you as people in utter need, as our lives, for many of us, seem to be spinning out of control, as chaos and noise, all of the temptations uh, of the world and culture vie for our affection and our allegiance. We ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts and our minds so that we might see you at the center of it all. Knowing that you are the Christ, the anointed one, our Messiah, our great king and priest who's come to serve and to steward the world to reconcile us to God the Father. And may we place our lives in your hands. May we find ourselves in you just as you, Christ, are in us. We love you and we thank you. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.